Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. As I uh, travel here and there to uh, practice mainly with uh, people, this practice of opening the heart and mind and clarifying uh, the nature of things and how to be in this uh, life. As I, tra- as I travel, there's a story that uh, I bring often with me here and there, and it's the story of the time of the Buddha that I... I mean, there's a few stories that I um, particularly... que um, j'affectionne, we would say in French, that, I, that are particularly dear to me. So, I want to share this little one to start the talk, and I hope there was going to be something in there for you. So there's this character uh, that is in the that we can read about in the time of the Buddha. Actually, this exchange that happened between a practitioner, somebody who's practicing the Dharma and the Buddha. So imagine for yourself having, if you had the chance to actually, uh, you know, by walking one evening, you see people at a campfire and you come close and somebody tells you, oh, this is the Buddha, this is the very wise being, you know what, uh, how excited maybe you, you would get, or you would have a chance to talk with the Buddha, what, what would be the question you would want to ask? What would be your sharing? What, how would you engage a conversation? It's an interesting thing to think about, thinking that you would have the chance maybe to ask a question or something. So there is a Rohitasa, this um, being who... Um, from the first time I read the story, I thought, oh, I like Rohitasa, their character, their personality. Um, they make me think a little bit of a puck in the Midsummer Night Dream, if that tells you. A little cheeky, very clever, very intelligent, very quick, and uh, somewhat playful, and uh, with a certain kind of confidence, and uh, a bright mind, curious mind, engaged, you know, you, you see the type type of character, and and also to me, uh, genderqueer, like uh, it, they don't do gender, they're, they're, you know, they have uh, the things they have inside of them that are very alive, the curiosity, the quickness of spirit, all this is, is not gendered, and so they, and they don't come across also as uh, gendered. I've always seen them like this and like them like this, and so, uh, so Rohitasa, comes to the Buddha and, and they say to the Buddha, first I think they pay respect maybe, and then they say to the Buddha, um, listen, I, I have a question for you. Okay, you might think it's weird, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it possible by traveling to reach the end of the world? where there's no more suffering, where it's, not, where it's spacious, where it's not crowded, where it's open, 
where we're free? Is it possible by traveling to get there? This is my question. And the Buddha being the Buddha, different character, different energy, you know. They say, no, <laughs> it's not possible. And Rohitasa goes like, wow, amazing. This is, this is amazing. This is incredible. Like I ask you, is it possible by traveling to reach the end of the world where one would be free from suffering, where it would be vast and open and peaceful? And like it's a big question, you know, and, and I ask you this and you just say, no, it's not possible. This is amazing. This is uh, completely amazing. And the Buddha says, yeah, Rohitasa, I say this. I say it's not possible by traveling to reach the end of the world. But I also say, and I'm going to look here now <laughs> to not mess up the words of the Buddha. Because <laughs> I tend to... <laughs> but I also say that it's not possible to reach the end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. That is a little bit intriguing. I'll say that again. So the Buddha said, Yeah, Rohitasa, I say it's not possible by traveling to reach the end of the world, but it's also not possible to reach the end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. That is very intriguing comment. If it was left at that, it wouldn't work for me, like I would, I would be a little lost and confused. But the Buddha, maybe being compassionate enough and far-seeing this, I might add a little something for Pascal and <laughs> a few others. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they thought, but <laughs> I take it very personal. <laughs> anyway, so the Buddha said, Rohitasa, the world, the beginning of the world, the end of the world, and the way, the way to the end of the world is in this fathom long body. This is a measurement huh, from the old days, like this is a fathom length. So the world, the beginning of the world, the end of the world, the way to the end of the world, therefore the way to the end of suffering is in this fathom long body with its mind and perception, Z perceptions. This is here. So do you understand like me that the Buddha seemed to be saying to Rohitasa, you don't have to travel like this. Because in the story also, maybe I'm jumping a little bit where Rohitasa says, uh, says, oh, it's amazing you say that we can't reach the end of the world by traveling because I tried. I tried. Like I really like speeded, I decided I'm going to reach the end of the world by traveling and I traveled, man, I traveled like crazy. Like I never stopped traveling for a long, long time. I traveled and traveled. And Roy Tassa is really honest in their meditation report or practice report. So they say, I traveled. Honestly, I didn't, st I almost didn't stop. That's in the text. I stopped to uh, rest a little bit, to pee, defecate, eat, and the rest of the time I traveled. 
they're, so they're very uh, honest about, <laughs> about <laughs> what they were doing. And, and they said, I never reached the end of the world. And I could travel like full speed, you know. And so they, they say, it's amazing that you know that by traveling we can't reach the end of the world. And the Buddha is saying, yeah, but you do have to reach the end of the world and know its beginning and all of it. And it's in here, in here. I like this a lot for me because the way I hear it is it talks about what we're doing here. We sit here in, with this phantom long body with its mind and heart and perceptions. And then we discover how maybe the world is created, the inner world or the world of perception, how I understand the world, how, you know, there's a lot that is happening just here. I'll give you a little example of this. It's a very tiny example, but for me it was a, it was a, I would say one of the little, little big pivotal points in my practice. I was here on retreat doing like we do, you know, starting over again, starting again, attending again. Okay, I was lost. What, what can I feel my leg? Can I feel, can I feel the sitting here? Can I feel the air? What, what is available? What is tangible? Oh, this belly is moving. Oh, there's a little anxiety. Oh, there's a little discomfort. Oh, there's a desire to be somewhere else. Okay, I'm becoming conscious of what's hap- happening and then getting lost again and coming back and getting lost and coming back and sometimes staying for a little while, discovering a little uh, passage of calm maybe. Oh, look at that. Let me feel this calm. Yeah, I can recognize how this would be described as wholesome, beneficial, this state of mind of quietness, openness, not very busy, not with much opinions about things, but just available. Yeah? So doing this practice like this, and comes uh, the meal time. So I'm there in line, partly judging people, partly being aware of my body, like the mixture of things that happen. Uh, in the line, maybe for you, or definitely for me, trying to be aware. And uh, at that time, it was a different time than today, and at that time, the forks and knives were at, and spoons were at the beginning of the line, not at the end. <laughs> These days are over now. <laughs> spoons are at the end now. Things change. But uh, I see that uh, there is soup, so in the bowl where you have all the things sticking out, I see spoons, you know, and I see the, the, that bit of the spoon, you know, not that bit, but that bit of the spoon. And so I grab a spoon for my uh, soup, and the spoon that comes out is a big serving spoon. <laughs> it's really like a big serving It's not made to f- for somebody to eat with. It's made for something else. So... I take the spoon out and I see this big and suddenly I'm guilty. I'm a guilty person that wants more than what they can, you know, that their mouth is bigger than their stomach or whatever the expression is and like I, I'm bad, you know. And then I'm like, oh my God, you know, like 
I get all like, do I put the spoon back or <laughs> bring it to the kitchen? And I, like, and I don't want people to see me with such a big spoon, you know, and what they're going to think of me. And, and, and uh, I don't know what I end up doing, maybe hiding the spoon back and good luck <laughs> to the next person and take a different spoon, the right spoon, you know. And then, ooh, my heart rate goes down. And suddenly I just realize the world that was created in this fathom long body with its mind and perceptions, how something was happening that was completely, it was not, I was not responsible of the spoon that came out, but suddenly it was describing me as a bad person, greedy person. And if I had not been attentive, I would have kind of glossed over this and taken this for reality, that it was almost revealed to people that I'm a bad person, but I hid it in time maybe. And then I would just keep going, my life going with this assumption, are you following me a bit? But when I saw this, suddenly because of prior moments of mindfulness, and that's what I attribute this insight to, suddenly it become really very apparent that this was a mental construction that was unuseful, untrue, and that I was probably living by a lot of the time. It's a very small event, but I remember sitting after with mixed emotion, sadness. Oh, this being has been living in the fear that they were bad and inadequate, not belonging, a bad person, and that they had to hide this. It's probably not the only thing at play operative all the time, but certainly at many times where actually it's a false belief, understanding of self. And then there was this, oh, need to be really careful about this. I cannot actually live on this. This is harmful. This is very violent. It's untrue, violent. It's cutting energy. It's l taking energy. It's not good for this being. And it's not good for people around to be around a being that has this belief, you know. Would you agree with me? Please agree with me that I'm... <laughs> no. Anyway, there was this... Oh, suddenly there was this... With the sadness, there was also this commitment that I actually want to see this. I want to be really conscious of this when it arises again, if it does, and it probably will. I really want to catch this because this is serious matter. We cannot live with this assumption. And something else was also present, was a kind of a compassion and a clarity that this actually was not to be believed and nourished or hidden, you know. And so for me in there, there was, this had some taste of liberation, being liberated from a certain pattern that was unuseful, untrue. To me, this kind of stuff comes about, this kind of insight, we could say, maybe psychological, you could say, but insight about the construction of the world, the inner world, how it begins, how it's constructed, and the way to its end. The Buddha said, Rohitasa, it's in this fathom long body with this mind and perception that also there is the end 
of the world, and I take it to be here the end of this kind of mental formations that are unuseful. You can see this arise here with the spoon coming out, and you can see it also die with wisdom saying, no, not appropriate, not the right way to treat this being. And so, again, for me, putting the value on paying attention, paying attention, and you don't know where it's going to actually kind of spring up or out, or whatever the English expression is here. Yeah. Maybe another kind of a little example of what's unfolding here, and this is from a, a, a meeting today that we have with a group of the retreatants here, and I think I can share this. I think I, I, it seems like a, okay to share this. Um, so somebody was saying, I have a question for you about practice. So I found myself at some point, maybe sitting on the cushion in the middle of the meditation, thinking about something, probably was something of the past, with a different perspective, instead of with kind of trigger, stress, reactivity, fear, resentment, or I, I don't know exactly what was there, but instead of thinking about this thing in this kind of habitual way, maybe, I was thinking about this particular event or person with compassion. Do you think it was okay to actually spend a little time thinking about this in meditation? Or was I kind of, uh, and these are my words here, but like cheating, or should I go back to the breath? or? What, what do you make of this situation? Because it seemed like there was something worthy of attention there, you know? And so my explanation of this as a meditation teacher is, and you'll see if you think it fits, it makes sense to you, is I'm interested by how this mind that was compassionate arose, you know? How this world of compassion was created and my sense was, you come here on a silence retreat with nature. It's not like you have a huge list of things to do. You don't even have to cook. They cook for you. You just have to sit here quietly and walk a little bit and sit. And there's a creating of a space, an inner space, where maybe unresolved things can land, but in a different way because of the attention that's been given, because of the care that one is given to breathing, to hearing, things that are extremely simple. Let me really hear the AC. Paying attention, caring. Let me feel these toes. And then suddenly, as the mind does, a memory comes. But the inner world is a little different here. It's a little bit more caring. So maybe the way it comes in is different. It's like, hmm, this is a painful situation for me and for this person. Or I don't know exactly what was the story, but I'm making it up a little bit here. But, hmm, that's not easy to not understand each other. Very diff different than, you know, whatever else could be there that is useful and... Uh, and difficult, you know. So I was saying, my sense is that this compassionate look or take on the situation came about because 
that we're creating the, it, the conditions for the heart to open and to maybe revisit things. And then my kind of instructions, you could say as a meditation teacher, or yeah, was like, but then let's be careful because then we could just kind of like in a habitual way keep thinking and thinking. So let's be careful to let allow this memory or this thing to come in with this different way to hold it. Not trying to fix it, organize it, or push it away, or you know, but just by, hey, wow, not easy, this part of my life or this thing, you know. And then just hold it for a little while, and then probably a good thing would be to just go back to sounds and breathing and not make a project out of this, you know. And just say like, okay, we touch lightly on this and return to the practice like this. In the same meeting, we were talking with um, somebody else who was describing. So to me here, there's um, what I just described was a kind of um, the how conditioning of something wholesome. How we can how we can make this mind. I hope this is going to work for you, but that's certainly a way it's described. How we can make this mind uh, beautiful with beautiful qualities like spaciousness, understanding, clarity. Sometimes the beautiful mind is a mind that is courageous, clear, uh, engaged, that can really come in and say, no, that doesn't work, you know. But the, the way we can make this mind a not harmful mind for self and for others is not by will. We cannot will it. We cannot decide it. Okay, now my mind is going to be open, vast, accepting, kind, and with deep understanding. You know, it doesn't work like this. We cannot control that, but we can create the conditions supportive for this. The, cr- the conditions supportive for this is, for example, coming on retreat here, paying attention, so that we can untangle the tangles of our minds and heart. And so my sense is when we come here and when we maybe bring the practice to our daily life and apply it in our day, it's the idea is to make the mind more and more wholesome, beneficial, helpful for self and others. And we clarify, how is this done? That's a part of our confusion. I want to be happy, but, you know, I tried getting, let's say, the car, because in TV they said happiness is a car. You know, I got the car, I'm not happy, what's wrong? You know, like, tell me, somebody, well, (laughs) here we say, let's discover how a mind can open up and uh, develop confidence and clarity in all these qualities, patience and the capacity to respond with maybe strength, but without maybe hatred or reactivity. Or, yeah. And so we're, we're clarifying this here in this way. Maybe this was clarified. This is one way to bring compassion in one's life is to actually attend to the moment. And when something more difficult lands, it lands in a field of caring. So it's almost uh, at least possible that compassion can arise. As when, it, when something difficult lands in a mind like ours, some of the time that a mind that is rigid, that is not pliable, malleable, flexible, open, 
It's just like bangs, you know, like, I know this is unresolved. It's been unresolved for so long. I should get over it. They should get over it, you know. This, this is a mind that is rigid. We often have a mind that is like this. And so now we're trying to see how can we make the mind a little bit more resonant, a little bit more sensitive and balanced. This is all what we're doing here by walking and sitting and being attentive when we shower or eat. Or, you know, We're making the mind, heart, body a little bit more resonant. So it's able to take in something and turn it into you know, churn it in wisdom, in compassion, make it, like, compost it, to make it something nice come out of it, you know. In the same way, as we come here, we clarify also which are the way that makes the mind rigid or more difficult to be with. For example, in the conversation today, I was saying, somebody was describing the mind being scattered and I was saying, or certainly wanted to say, like, oh, not easy to have a mind scattered, because in the scattered mind, it will often lead to discouragement. Like, that's kind of, you know, in the mind that is more quiet, in the wake of a mind that is quiet, comes clarity, comes possibilities, creativity, confidence, uh, energy, uh, balance, you know. But in a mind that is scattered, the chances of the mind... Uh, being dejected are more high of the mind, uh, the arising of doubt in the mind. Of course, you know, if we sit here and it's hard to connect with what's happening, it would be only natural that at some point we'd say, what am I doing here? You know, doubt would arise. Like, maybe this doesn't work for me, you know. And this is a difficult state of mind. The experience of doubt is difficult, you know. And in the wake of doubt, there could be the desire for something else. Let me leave here. I want to be somewhere else. I should have gone by the beach. You know, maybe I can reach the beach if I leave now, you know. And so suddenly there's desire. And in desire, what is there? Is an experience of lack. This is difficult. Like happiness is somewhere else. It's not here. You know, like sometimes we think that our desire talks about happiness. But when we slow down and look closely, feel closely, suddenly we realize, oh, seems to be postponing well-being. Like, in an angle that I've been considering it in the past, it looked like it was presenting me, your happiness is not here, not possible, it's over there, over there. Now I look, I'm like, oh, this desire for something else is an immediate experience of lack. Maybe it's not that helpful. Maybe could I check if that desire has a worth to it, depth to it, or could I let it go and just land here? So these things we can't clarify by just hearing about it, although it can to some extent. You know, that's why per there is the Dharma talks, because it, we can clarify things a bit by receiving information. And that's also something I like to present often, is this kind of three ways to understand deep, to understand the world. In the Buddhist psychology, as I understand it, is there's the level of information. So we hear about stuff, we read about stuff, and we can learn things, very valued in our society, information. A little deeper is reflection, that's true. I recognize this to be true in my life, or 
maybe it's a little different in my life. I see that aspect that hasn't na been named, you know. I reflect. And a little bit deeper is meditation, a direct experience, a direct experience of desire, of desire with clinging in it. A direct, like quality encounter, not your regular, we've been spending a lot of time in desire or doubt or self-loathing, but now we bring some extraordinary attention to self-loathing, <laughs> to desire, and then it becomes like more like, oh, wow, this is really hurtful. So what I was about to say is we, in this practice, we tend to soak for a little while in difficult states of mind. We don't want to get rid of them too quickly because they hold important information. You know, if I, st I stay in resentment for a with a higher quality than usually, higher attentiveness than usually, maybe it's going to become really clear in a felt way. That's Apparently we have to go through that. In the felt way, it's going to become really clear to me that it's actually harming myself. When it becomes really clear in a felt way, there's a possibility of letting go. Not before it becomes really clear in a felt way. And sometimes it means needs many encounter with the same unuseful, difficult mind state to actually clarify something. So that's the kind of, so if you're like, oh my God, it's so hard for me to be here. Well, partly it's kind of uh, by design, would say Anushka, or I heard you use this expression. And, and because I need to be in it for a little while to, to actually, so it lands in me like, oh, my love, maybe we shouldn't invest so much in that attitude or behavior or quality of mind, you know. Just a little thing on desire that just pops in my mind. I was on a retreat here and uh, I was probably bored, didn't want to feel the boredom, didn't want to like investigate, like feel it really with the quality attention. So I decided I would uh, feed the chipmunks. So I went outside there, there used to be a bench. It's not there anymore, the bench is gone. <laughs> Things ch keep changing. What's wrong with this place? Anyway. I get some seeds of some sorts and the chipmunk, uh, I put them there, I think, and the chipmunk comes and eats uh, the seeds. I'm like, ah, oh, that's great. I wonder if they would come in my hand. And so I put the seeds like this and spend like hours. <laughs> Finally, the chipmunk comes. My uh, desire is um, satisfied. You know, they come, they actually touch my fingers and then they leave with the seeds. And I'm like, Wow, that was great. I wonder if they would come like here, not just here, but here. <laughs> and so I put a few hours in this. This is my training. You know, others are training mindfulness. I'm training desire for chipmunks. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and the chipmunks come up to here and then they leave. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Next time I'm going to try to lift my hand. <laughs> so the chipmunk comes, they're there. I lift my hand. That was my desire, just to have just that chipmunk in hand up in the air <laughs> I'm satisfied you know and then the chipmunk jumps out and comes out I wonder if I could bring it close to my eyes <laughs> and so at some point I'm like this here 
with the chipmunk eating, and I'm like this, and then I'm thinking, what is the next step? <laughs> like, I hope I'm not going to have the idea of putting it on my tongue or something. <laughs> like, I hope this is going to stop soon, you know? <laughs> but then I was able to see kind of the nature of desire, like it cannot actually be satisfied, you know? Like, it just wants another, a little bit more, a little bit more, because the satisfaction passes, you know? And anyway, I was able to clarify this a little bit in my life, you know, like, oh, desire to be used carefully, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, sparingly, or like, uh, don't just go to desire, like, stop and reflect, you know, is that, is that worth investing energy? Because it, it can take a lot of energy, you know, and so... It's not exactly where I wanted to go with this talk, but <laughs> this is where I find myself. And so by paying attention, one of the things, maybe I stay with desire just for a few more seconds here. When I pay attention, quality attention, and I, like I kind of stress the quality attention, extraordinary attention. I don't know if you've noticed, I, I may as well tell you out loud, you know, I'm kind of stressing this because this is at the heart of this thing. And to me, the schedule is really built to develop this quality attention and we can easily kind of gloss over it, like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful. What we're talking about is a nudge above that, even a nudge above, not in the way that we would force it, but what we're talking about is of a pretty high quality. And it's possible for us to do it but it's probably even a little bit more than what you imagine. One of the downsides of saying this is that you could start beating yourself up. Please don't. I'm just trying to encourage us to... It's not just being here in general, it's being here a little bit more specifically, tending towards, not forcing, not that I should be otherwise, but how can I be a little bit more intimate or closer or, you know, like feel, be more clear about what is being known right now. It's actually not easy to get the mindfulness we're talking about. It's, uh, and when we get it, I mean, we keep getting it more clear, but it's, uh, it needs a lot of uh, time, attention and generosity. It's, it, you can't do it just like this, you know, it's not just like that. It, uh, it requires of us to give a little bit more even, a little bit more again, again. I hope that works. I've never talked about this like this and I hope the downside is not going to put the bar too high or make you discouraged or, or something like I just want to say being here in general is not it. It's, it's being here very specifically you know, when we practice, is what is actually being felt here. Not that, yeah, I can say I was basically here, you know. Basically here is not exactly it. Yeah. And so one of the things that can become clear, maybe in relationship to desire, also is that when I have one of these mind states that is not that helpful, not only is it hard to feel, the fact that my happiness is somewhere else is not easy to feel like, oh, I need this person to be like this or to 
answer or to like ah uh, you know it's difficult to feel but also and this requires some level of attention we can discover that it alters perception that things that's rohitasa in the creation of the world like i'm going back when i'm under the spell of desire something will appear satisfying like if only the chipmunk was to stay as i lift my hand i would be happy how strange is that like it really appeared in that moment that my happiness was in that from anybody outside would say no probably you won't get happiness from that but in the trance of desire that's how it appears i'm using the chipmunk please translate it to the most difficult part of your life with desire you know where if only i had this and the more we pay attention the more we become aware that actually it seems like a bad news what i'm about to say but it's actually a liberating discovery when i pay attention i might discover that nothing is actually completely satisfying that it doesn't have the capacity to satisfy me not a darn thing the career i want when i get it it's not going to be exactly it it's not possible the recognition i want when i get it it's not going to actually totally do it because somebody might not agree because it might not last you know when i get the person i want it might be shaky because now they see me in a certain way and will they keep seeing me like this or will they find out that i'm bad you know or will they go away or things are uncertain they don't have in them the capacity to completely fulfill but under the spell of wanting wanting i lose track of this i haven't seen myself how i can under the spell of wanting something really strongly i'm able to totally dismiss some of the information that was there from the beginning the, i i don't want this bit of the information this thing is really going to satisfy me and this is it and then when i get i'm like oh well there was this thing it was sad it was clear but i dismissed it completely because of the what desire would do or anger i don't care if desire doesn't work for you let's put uh, hatred there anger under the spell the trance of anger it appears not as clear i think usually when i find that i'm under the spell of anger not is it not only is it hard to feel but also nuances are gone they've been like this they've always been like this they always will be like this my mind becomes really sharp and nuances are gone and so a world is created for me rohitasa you don't have to travel look inside this fathom long bunny with its body with its mind and perception with its states of mind and perception and being very attentive you'll find out that some states of mind present to you a reality that on the other side of the state of mind you're like oh it appeared like this it made me say this it made me do this and now trouble arose for me yeah 
So there's a lot we can clarify around mind state uh, when we pay attention to the body, to the breath. We discover what kind of mind is actually there feeling the breath. We discover that it's a scattered mind, a disinterested mind, an interested mind. It's good to be aware of this. Further along in the practice, we can start maybe questioning or becoming interested in maybe that little aspect of reality that is uh, this consciousness that is there, this knowing quality that is there. There's something here between every pair of eyes that is experiencing the world. We tend to appropriate this. Is that a way to say this? Identify with this. This is me, the witness, the observer. With great attention, maybe we can discover that there is some intelligence there, there is some knowing, capacity to meet experience. But maybe it's not so personal. Of course, it would need great attention to be able to question the unquestioned, to say, what is this intelligence there? Is that really moi? Ah, it's funny, I don't make it happen. It kind of lends it. I find myself in the middle of knowing, and then I do the best I can with it, you know? But there's a knowing there. And in the quietness of the retreat, in the silence of the retreat, if we can gather the mind a little bit, quiet the mind a little bit, then things that are kind of assumed or preconceived can be can reveal themselves a little bit more. Look at that, there's a knowing here that keeps knowing, wanting it or not. It has its own life. How mysterious is this? Sometimes it's colored by ease, some ki- sometimes by opinions, sometimes by reactivity, sometimes by kindness. How amazing is that? So slowly as we will sit and walk tonight and tomorrow, we'll learn to uh, will help, will create the conditions for the mind to maybe calm down a bit, to cultivate some curiosity. So there'll be a mixture, and that's the art of meditation, a mixture of calm and balance with the right amount of energy, curiosity, interest. And these two together, the balance and the kind of investigation, engagement, these two together are known to be the best mm, conditions for mind to learn, to learn any task, to be in relationships, to meet a world that is of privilege or oppression, to 
meet a world that suggests some norms that maybe have nothing to do with ultimate reality. The best conditions, the best strategy to meet life, no matter what, pleasure, displeasure, and to free the mind. And so no beating oneself up and no strong desire with clinging. I have to have that mind. No. A deep understanding that this is conditional. We can't will it or control it, but we can definitely tend towards, especially if the mind doesn't add judgments, but just keeps showing up, keep showing up. Let me just become aware of this reality again and again. And in this way, calm, energy, enthusiasm maybe, balance, equilibrium, equanimity, concentration, confidence, all these qualities will come in the wake of this paying attention again and again. This is nothing personal to you or to me. It's just the nature of life as described in the Buddhist teaching. Let's, let's uh, check it out, if you want. Okay, thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment here. keep creating the conditions for these beautiful qualities of mind to come visit, be cultivated, become strong, not haphazard, but good best friends, we could say, so that we can free this mind, experience a freedom and offer freedom, so that we can protect this mind and offer protection, so that everyone can be safe wherever we go, safe around us, that our mind can be safe for us and safe for others to be around. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.